0: Okay, as I alluded to in my prayer even tonight, on some of these family fellowship nights, we've been looking at a little mini series of types on pictures or illustrations that can be found in the Old Testament about how only God can save, only God can save. And last time we looked, we looked at the picture of probably the first somewhat clear picture of the cross in the sense of even the shape of the cross when we looked at the passover and how those that had applied the blood of an innocent to the doorposts of their home the side door the sides of the doors and the top of the door making this picture of a cross that we'd seen this substitution Picture several other times throughout the Old Testament, but now we saw, even in a sense, this shape of how, through the application of blood to the account of everyone within that home, that everyone that was covered by the blood, the blood of that innocent lamb that had been shed in the place of the guilty that lived within that home, that the angel of death would pass over. And so, the message of the Bible was dying physically, you'll die spiritually now, on account of being identified with sinfulness meaning that you deserve to be forever separated from God, but God is going to have to make a way to cover that sin in a temporary picture of the sacrifice of a lamb, but in a permanent way through providing a substitute to deal with your sinfulness, which you could never deal with on your own. That the debt that was owed by you for your sinfulness was eternal separation from God, but God in his love wanted to make a way for an estranged sinner to be reconciled to him. And so Old Testament looking forward to the coming, final redemption, the Redeemer, what we now know looking backwards to be the cross work of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the place of sinners, the final lamb. But in the Old Testament looking forward and God progressively revealing more and more about the coming rescuer, the coming redemption, the final redemption that God would provide to deal with Man's sin. And so that was one of the clearest pictures that we've seen so far even in this series. We had seen animals who were killed so that their skins could be used to cover Adam and Eve in the garden after they first sinned. We saw then the sacrifice of lambs be instituted by God as through that death of an innocent in the place of the guilty. Man could see that they were guilty, that there was a debt that was owed for sin and unless they died themselves, something else or someone else would have to die in their place and we saw that. We, We looked at even the picture of the ark as God needing to provide a way of rescue to deal with the condemnation or the judgment that man rightfully faced. We then looked at the story of even the tower of Babel and how God wasn't going to allow man to come up with a solution of their own, but that man would need to trust God to provide the solution. We looked at the story of Isaac and Abraham and how God had to provide a substitute. Then we looked at the story of the Passover and how it was with the covering of the blood that man could be passed over in a sense by the angel of death and that judgment that was brought out or carried out On Egypt. And so we saw that as a a picture of the cross. Now, tonight we're going to look at a picture of redemption and we're going to pick up essentially where we left off last time in Exodus chapter 12. Now, remember that as we're looking at these different illustrations or pictures or stories, one of, the thing I want, one of the things that I want you to see is that the Bible is ultimately one cohesive story communicated by God through human writers. But the story of the Bible, it climaxes with the sacrifice of Jesus because the story of the Bible is more so than anything. It's a story about how man had a problem. Things got broken between God and man. And God had to institute or, or initiate a means of rescuing man. So a rescue story or a redemption story. We called it the redemption love story a few years back when we went through a summary of the whole Bible from creation up to the cross. But it's a, it's a story that climaxes with the sacrifice of Jesus. And the future sacrifice it's foreshadowed and predicted prophetically throughout the Old Testament. We know that because Paul, when he reasons with Jewish people about the gospel message, it it says that he goes through the scriptures, and it says in one instance, from morning till night, he goes through the Old Testament scriptures to show them how Jesus was being talked about and foreshadowed and illustrated by the Old Testament. Now, we don't know exactly which passages he went to, just like we don't know exactly which passages Jesus went to when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, and he was showing these followers, these disciples disciples of Jesus, how all of the Old Testament Scripture had been pointing or talking to or speaking about him. Now, which passages did he go to in the scripture? We don't know that again for sure, but we're seeing some of the ones he might have gone to. And this, in fact, may be one of the pictures that he pointed out or looked at, both Paul and Jesus, as we're thinking about the redemption plan the plan of rescue, the sacrifice of Jesus being predicted and pointed to prophetically and through foreshadow illustration in the Old Testament. Now, we've considered a bunch of those. I reviewed them here a minute ago. And tonight's passage, it just represents another example of Old Testament foreshadowing of God's plan of rescue. And it illustrates the rescue from bondage that is fundamental to the gospel message or the salvation that God provides. Man, the Bible says, is in bondage to the debt of sin, the consequence of sin. And if you were going to share one verse that would tell somebody that you were talking to about the gospel, if you're going to share a verse that kind of stands for that principle, young people, what, what verse might you quote them or show them in the Bible? that man is in bondage to sin or there's a debt that is owed for sin that causes all men to have a very real problem don't be shy what what verse what verse might you bring them to okay and if you don't if you don't know then some of you that I'm looking at aren't paying attention very well in some of our lessons that we have uh, for young people, whether it's at retreats or at VBS or in Sunday school, about how do we share the gospel? Well, if we're going to share that man has a problem, and maybe I'm saying it kind of confusingly, you got an idea? Okay, which verse though? What verse would we go to that says man needs to be freed from the bondage they are or the penalty they owe for sin? Sure okay, do you remember where that's at? Uh, well, John 3:16. Is is a verse we might use, Romans six twenty three. Okay, that that is one of them that you should go to. Now the one you quoted is Romans three twenty three, which is okay. Uh, I'm not that great with references either. Don't tell anybody. I said that publicly. But Romans three twenty three says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what talks about the the condemnation or the bondage part of that is that the wage of sin is. What is that one? Romans 6.23, the wage of sin. What is it? Say it together. For the wages... What I love about that is that if you don't have somebody directing you, we can't do it together, can we? Okay, the wages of sin is death... But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we're thinking about this and we're looking at this idea of the problem that man has with sin, man needs to be rescued from that bondage that they're in, that debt that they owe. And so here we have a picture of that in Exodus chapter 12. And it's going to illustrate that the rescue from this bondage, it's fundamental to the salvation plan of God. So turn to Exodus 12 if you're not there already. And we're going to pick up in verse 31. Verse thirty one, Exodus twelve, thirty-one. Now some of you don't know this, but this is a story involving being rescued from Egypt, the nation of Egypt being rescued, and how God uses Moses and his brother Aaron to be essential in that, though not essential in the sense that they're just instruments that God is using. But that's why Moses, as being the leader of this, is sometimes referred to as the first redeemer. And you'll see that there's a biblical basis for that. We'll look at that in in a minute here. But he's referred to as the first redeemer, Uh, a clear picture of the final redeemer, Jesus Christ, the redeemer of the world. So let's just read this section and then we'll go through it a little bit. We're going to read verses 31 through 40. Picking up in thirty one, then he, Pharaoh, is who we're talking about there, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. And remember this is just after that Death of the Firstborn, the final plague of the ten plagues in Egypt. And so he says, Go. Verse thirty two, also take your flocks and your herds, if you have as you have said, and be gone And then he throws this in, and bless me also. (laughs) Verse 33, and the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked From the Egyptians, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Normally, that's a term of war, where you take all of the loot, or the spoil, or the wealth of the people that you conquered, but they didn't have to do anything. God did that for them, and we'll talk about that in a minute. 37, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also in flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock, and they baked unleavened cakes of dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. So we're gonna stop We're going to stop there and back up a little bit. So in our story here, this picture of redemption, we're going to see that Moses was tasked by God to deliver his people, to deliver his people from bondage that they were in as slaves of the nation of Israel. So that's the background leading up to this. Now Moses had gone and talked to Pharaoh on numerous occasions and asked Pharaoh to let the people go. And Pharaoh did not let the people go. So then there was a series of plagues. You young people remember, This story, you remember where we're at in the story of the Bible right now? Okay, so that's where we're at. And eventually, though, with this horrific plague, where there's wailing and crying in all the homes of the Egyptians, because they did not believe, or they were not covered by the blood applied to the doorpost, they lost their oldest, their firstborn sons. And so it was horrible. Imagine how horrible it had been for all the other plagues in Egypt, where you had had water turned to blood, you had had locusts, you had had hailstones that were the, the size of, of baseballs or golf balls or something like that, that were just horrific plagues that were poured out on Egypt. It had been pitch black, it had gone dark, all of these different plagues. Now, this is the worst by far, where there's all this death of actual human beings. And that was enough to finally convince the Egyptians and Pharaoh that God was much more powerful than they could stand against. Because that was really what this was about. It wasn't about standing against Moses. Moses wasn't fighting against Pharaoh. Moses was saying, God has said, let my people go. Now, who was Pharaoh resisting? God. And is there anyone who can stand against God? And the answer is no, but it took going through a bunch of horrific trials for Pharaoh and the nation of Israel to realize that. And so that's where we're picking up our story. So then he called. So after there's all of this death and all of this wailing and all of this sadness, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron by night. And he says, rise and get out of here. (laughs) Take, Take the children of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said. And take your flocks and your herds as you have said also. Take those with you and be gone. But maybe some blessing can come on me in the the process. So he throws that in, like I mentioned, bless me. So Pharaoh is finally convinced. Not a lot more to that, but I want you to notice this. Pharaoh is finally convinced just as God previously told Moses he would be. See, God knows things before they happen because God is all-knowing. What do we call that attribute, kids? Omniscient. Omniscient. He knows everything. Yeah, good. And so as we're thinking about this, look at chapter 11, turn back to chapter 11, verse 1, how God had said that this is exactly what would happen. And this is before this last plague that God reveals this. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Isn't that exactly what God said would happen? No, that's what we were reading is happening in verse, verses 31 and 32. Now, the second thing we see here is that the Egyptian people, they agreed. They were convinced that it was time for the nation of Israel to be set free as well. And in addition to agreeing, they provided financial support. Let's pick up in verse 33. And the Egyptians themselves, no, not, we're not talking about Pharaoh anymore, talking about the Egyptians. They urged the people that they, they might send them out of the land in haste. They couldn't get rid of them fast enough. For they said, we shall all be dead. If, if we don't uh, agree with God, then we're gonna end up dying as a result of that. Now, I'll tell you this. There's so many ways that that statement is true. If we don't agree with God, with what he says about our sinfulness and about our need for his deliverance or his salvation from our sin, we will die. If we're Christians and we can't agree with God, we refuse to agree with God, but we're God's children, then we could never lose our salvation. Okay, We'll never lose our salvation once we believe in Jesus Christ. Once we believe, he will never let us go. But we will experience death if we can't agree with God. If we can't learn to say the same thing of God, we're dead men walking. We'll be living our lives as God's children, but living it in a state of death, spiritual death still, even though positionally we're spiritually alive, but practically we'll be living like we're spiritually dead. Why? Because we're not convinced that what God says is true. And that's here a clear application that we could make from this, even though that's not what it's about. They're talking about physical death. If this goes on, it's not just going to be the firstborn sons, it's going to be all of us that are dead because we will not take God at his word. Keep moving, verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up. They already packed their bowls is one way to say that. So they took the dough and they took that with them as well. Verse 35, and all the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, meaning in chapter 11, he told them to ask the Egyptians for these things. we so had already told them to do this. Ask the Egyptians for what though? Articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Then we have our conclusion there. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So the Egyptian people both agreed to let the nation of Israel go and they provided financial support for that to happen. And it was significant. Now we don't know the full extent of it, but they're said to have been plundered. So it wasn't like they gave them a little bit of the wealth of Egypt, they gave them a significant enough portion of the wealth of, e- of Egypt. The nation of Israel was given this voluntarily by the nation of, Is- of Egypt. Because of God having proven his point to them, that the nation was said to have been plundered or ransacked as if a conquering army had come through there. So we can read right by that, but the, Egypt, the nation of Israel didn't leave Egypt paupers. They, they left Egypt with the wealth of Egypt. They took it with them. And that's something very significant, thinking about how God doesn't need us to lift a finger. God can just provide because he's a God who is capable of doing exceedingly and abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Now, I want you to see this too. Not only did they provide financial support, but this had been promised to Abraham 430 years earlier. God tells us in advance the things he's going to do to reveal to us that he is the only true God. The only wise God. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. It's a little bit of page turning here tonight. Genesis fifteen. And then we'll we'll, Lord willing, pick up our pace a little bit. But Genesis fifteen. Four hundred and thirty years earlier. We're gonna look for verse fourteen. Okay, it says this, God is talking to Abram, so we can go back to 13, and he, God, said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now we'll get to this in a minute. There's a lot of, there's a lack of clarity about exactly what that means as it relates to how long. were the the nation of Israel even in Egypt, and how long were they even maybe slaves in Egypt? But we're not going to be able to cover all that tonight, but just know that that's one of the passages that creates a little bit of misunderstanding because we're going to read later that they're said to have have left Egypt after 430 years, and here God is saying 400 years, and there is an explanation to that. There's more than one, and not everybody agrees. But what I want is verse 14. And also, the nation whom they serve. Now he's talking about Egypt in advance. I will judge. Did God judge the nation of Egypt harshly? Yeah, those 10 plagues were devastating. I will judge them and afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. 430 years earlier, God told Abraham that that would happen in the future to his descendants. I don't know about you, but that's something that's encouraging to see. Now, this also occurred just as God previously told Moses just before it happened in, in chapter 11. So go back to chapter 11 of Exodus. And I just want you to see that God not only told Moses ahead of time, after this, before this last plague, that they would let the people go, but he told them that when that happened, they would ultimately be supported financially by the Egyptian people. Verse two says, speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. So they were to ask for that in advance of the 10th plague and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, meaning they gave them what they asked for such that the nation of Egypt again was said to have been plundered. Now we move on. This next section here is that many people were set free as a result of the exodus. Now think about the redemption of Jesus Christ. All men were given the opportunity to be set free because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Jesus paid the debt of all men sin. And so as Jesus paid the debt, it was to redeem men from the bondage they were in to the debt that was owed for sin. And Jesus did that for every single person. But as we look at this illustration that's pointing or symbolizing this coming redemption of Jesus Christ we see that many people were set free as a result of the Exodus too pick up in verse 37 so in verse 37 we read the children, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth I think it's 137 miles is what it's estimated to be there about 600,000 men on foot besides children along with verse 38 a mixed multitude went up with them also and flocks and herds a great deal of livestock. So there's this giant group of people that were freed from bondage as a result of the redemption that God provided from this particular bondage that they were in. So 600,000 men, it leads to an estimated population in excess of 2 million Jewish people, when you think about children and women and the people, not men. And then it's said to also include an additional group called a mixed multitude. Now, what was that? Well, it was composed of various non-Israelites that likely included some Egyptians that had feared the word of the Lord. If you look at chapter nine, verse 20, it says that there were some Egyptians that feared the word of the Lord. Now, would some of them have been convinced to leave behind Egypt and go follow the one true God? I think that's a fair assumption. Other foreigners might have been a part of this, meaning other people in Egypt that saw the nation of Israel Israel leaving and said, we're going to go with this crew based on all the destruction that had happened. Uh, And perhaps slaves that were native to other countries that had been in bondage along with the Israelites, people they had been working alongside of that had in a sense already maybe placed their faith in the God of the Israelites. So that's what is probably meant by that. Mixed multitude, no way to know for sure. But then there was also this significant amount of livestock. Now what's the next? So lots of people benefited from this redemption or this rescue from bondage that took place here as again a picture of the coming redemption. But they couldn't free themselves or care for themselves. The people who were being rescued needed to be rescued by someone else. They couldn't free themselves or care for themselves. Now read verse 39. Verse 39 says, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Now why? Because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait for the, for the dough to be to rise nor had they prepared provisions for themselves so when they left Egypt on this journey they had no provisions prepared that's what this says they had prepared they nor had they prepared provisions for themselves so what's the takeaway there the takeaway is that God is the one providing God is the one rescuing God is the one redeeming God always provides and, and what was important about God allowing them to leave Egypt in this state where he didn't give them a month to prepare for this journey. God didn't tell them, get all of this food ready so that you can feed yourselves on this trip. Just abruptly, they're sent out of Egypt. Well, why would God have allowed that? Because God wants to show us, he wanted to show them just like he wants to show us that they needed to trust him. And when there's nowhere else to turn, you have no other option other than to trust the Lord. Now think about some of the things that God had to provide along the way for this journey. Who had the map? Kids, who had the map for the journey to leave leave Egypt? No No one, right? Did they know where they were going exactly? Did God even take them in a direct route from Egypt to the promised land? No, he didn't. It was a long way around. There were shorter routes, the way of the Philistines, but they didn't take that. God led them a different way. Now, how did he lead them? Cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? God led them. What else did God do along the way? Who fed them? God, with what? Manna from heaven. Who who made sure they didn't uh, run out of clothing for the trip? Oh Do you know that part? That their clothes never wore out? Yeah. That their shoes never wore out? Okay, yeah. you knew that? Some of you are shaking your heads. you didn't know that. Okay, well, aren't you glad you came tonight? Okay. Wouldn't it be nice if we had those kind of clothes and shoes, huh? Take a look at the bottom of this shoe. There's no soul left on it. Could use some shoes that don't wear out. But God was wanting to show them that he's the one who provides. Not only does he redeem them as far as giving them, getting them out of the bondage they were in in Egypt, but then he provides for them along the way thereafter. Do you remember that as you're thinking about God in your life? Are you remembering that he's not just the God who rescues from sin's penalty, but he's the one who rescues from even the power of sin over our life and one day will rescue us from the very presence of sin? God doesn't stop providing for his children. Well, we end with these last, this last verse here. Redemption was a long time coming. They couldn't free or care for themselves, but this redemption that they'd been waiting for it didn't come quickly. It was a long time coming. Read verse 40. Verse 40 says, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now, I can't spend a lot of time on this because we've already gone a little bit longer than I had originally planned here tonight, but I want you to know this, that it was a long time coming. Now, there's some disagreement about what 430 years of sojourning means. It could refer to only the time that the nation of Israel was in Egypt. So it could be 430 years. When it comes to dating things as far as the exact chronology of how different characters in the Bible, exactly where they were at in the storyline on a chart of dates, there's different guys like Ushers is one guy, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but people who have dedicated their life to looking at genealogies that are found in the Bible, trying to chart different dates that are given so that they can kind of put together a timeline. But it's not, there's not total agreement about it. And so some think that this refers to only the time that the nation of Israel was in Egypt, uh, where, when Jacob had come to Israel, and that there for 430 years they were there in Egypt. Now, others think that it refers to the total amount of time between the call of Abraham and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which was not that long after they left Egypt. It didn't take them that long to get to Mount Sinai. So it would still be within this 430 year time period now you can kind of take that timeline from galatians 3:17 talking about that from the promises made to abraham to the giving of the law was 430 years so by that reference if you take that meaning you would say that this 430 years has to include the time that abraham spent in in Mesopotamia, the time that Abraham spent in Canaan, the time from Abraham's call all the way up to Mount Sinai, that that would be 430 years, which would put the total time in Egypt at closer to 215 years uh, versus 430 years of separate time in Egypt. Now, is this critical? Well, it's critical in the sense that we want to get the Bible right. We, We seek to get it right. But can we definitively answer all of these questions? No. I read more articles about this today than you would ever maybe want to read in a lifetime. But Answers in Genesis is a is a, a website. It's a it's an organization that provides a lot of different kinds of of, of answers to d- timelines and questions about dinosaurs, questions about Genesis because it's called Answers in Genesis. So they're trying to help with some of those things. They take the 215 years in Egypt approach, 430 years total between Abraham's call and the time that the law was given at Mount Sinai. Then what did they do with that passage? We read in Genesis about 400 years of being sort of oppressed. They say that that starts when Isaac was five years old, when Ishmael and Hagar were mocking him that the oppression of being oppressed, it it, it starts there actually. That's how you can, Rectify the two different times and come up with four hundred years between then and the time that the law was given at Mount Sinai. Now, I know some of your eyes are glazing over, and you 're just saying there 's not one part of me that ever cared about this, okay, but if you do care and you want to talk about it more, come talk to me about it after after the service. I kind of take the latter view I, I kind of take the view that based on Galatians 3:17 that he was talking about the time the promise was made to the time the law was given that that total time span is 430 years some timelines agree with that some don't I don't think it's a critical point of theology so as we thinking about as we're thinking about that the actual time of bondage or or slavery in Egypt because the whole time the nation was in e- in Egypt they weren't slaves during part of that time Joseph was the head of the nation of Egypt and they were given the best land in Goshen. They were given, by my estimate, at least six generations that were able to take place of having the very best. Now, how many people came with Jacob to Egypt? There's dispute about that too. There's 70 souls that are accounted for at one point in, in Genesis, but there's many other people in the family that aren't named in that 70, including daughters and second wives and things like things along those lines, concubines. People that would have been a part of that larger extended family, such that there's many that estimate that that number was much more than 70 that originally came to Egypt to begin with. So some of it comes down to math. How can you get to 600,000 men or 2 million people total by the time you leave Egypt? And are there enough generations? Is there enough time for that to happen? So in any event, for, a, for probably sometime around 150 years, that would be the minimum, they were slaves in Egypt. We know that Joseph lived for 70 more years after Jacob died, or sorry, after Jacob arrived in Egypt. And so we know that's, th- that's probably the timeline in terms of slavery, 150 years or so. What if it was longer? What if it was 430 years in Egypt, which would make the time of slavery more like 300 years of slavery? If, if that were the case, it was still a long time. Is 150 years a long time? Yes. Is 300 years a long time? Is it a long time to wait for rescue, kids? Yes. Some of you guys can't wait 10 minutes for dinner, right? Some of you, when you're put on a timeout or you're having some sort kind of a discipline, you, you can't sit still for five minutes, right? So 150 years or 300 years doesn't matter much. Ask yourself this. How long was the nation of Israel later on in the story? How long was the nation of Israel in exile in Babylon? 70 years, right? And so before they were allowed to return. So at a minimum, it was twice that long that it took for God to bring about a redeemer or a redemption or a deliverance from Egypt. And so in any event, you could spend a lot of time talking about that. I could have given a whole message just about that, the differences of opinion about that, but that's not the point. The point from this passage is that I hope you're seeing that this is a picture of redemption. Turn to Acts chapter 7. This will be our last passage tonight. You see that the New Testament identifies Moses as an example of the coming deliverer or the redeemer that was Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 7. And Stephen, before he is stoned to death as the first Christian martyr, Stephen gives a long speech. And it's a speech that directly contributes to his death because as soon as he basically calls them out for having killed Jesus and persecuting the followers of Jesus... They pick up stones and they stone him, at which point Stephen exercises the kind of forgiveness and gracious disposition toward people that you and I should, should strive for, which he says he cries out with his last breaths that God would not hold this trespass against them, right? Remember how he said that? He cried with a loud, uh, they cried with a loud voice, but then he says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. That's the last thing that he says before he dies. But I want you to look at verse 35. As a part of this speech about their history of killing God's prophets and rejecting God's truth, he's talking to these national leaders, these religious leaders of the nation of Israel, he says this about Moses. This Moses, remember, he's talking about how God saw the oppression of my people who were in Egypt. Who did he send? He sent Moses. Now he says, this Moses... Whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Now, did the nation of Israel um, do that all the way through? No, sometimes they followed after Moses, but they took that approach with Moses several times. Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler, and what is this word here? And a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now that word deliverer can also be translated redeemer. So who was pictured here as a picture of the coming Redeemer, Moses was. And so as we're looking at the Old Testament, we see these pictures of redemption, and here's another one about how only God can save. And again and again throughout the storyline of the Bible, man is reminded of his guilt, of his problem, of the need for substitutionary death in the place of the guilty. And the foreshadowing and illustrations, they continue to point to the future final sacrifice of Jesus, and this is just one more of them. Because unfortunately, just like Moses, the actual Redeemer has been rejected by many needing redemption. See, all men need redemption. But unfortunately, though the Redeemer came in the person and work of Jesus Christ, many did not accept Him. Many continue to not accept Him. But as you look at this picture of redemption, I hope you see that it's just another great illustration of how God alone can save. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to fellowship, even have a few snacks and treats. Pray that we could see the value of coming together, taking time out of our schedule and our days when it permits, uh, when, when we're able to, to come and open your word together collectively with other believers. Even fellowship about things like this that were, can be found in the story of the Bible as the story of the Bible is ultimately about rescue, redemption, about how God needs to do for man what man cannot do for himself. Pray that we would see that apart from you, we're hopeless and helpless, that we need to operate with a mentality that is depending on you for every facet of our life, for our every need. Thank you again for this church and for this time.